Hi, Mary. Happy birthday for last week. Yeah, you have a good day? Yeah, lovely. Thanks very much. Yeah, it was really nice to just, nice to mark the occasion, even if it wasn't a big birthday. And Dan, happy birthday for this week. Yes, thank you very much. Yeah, so confusingly, we we actually have our birthdays in consecutive weeks, don't we? Just complete, obviously, coincidence. But yeah, it was it was fun. Went for a bit of a run, had a bit of lunch, sat around reading The Economist sort of thing. That's the usual sort of stuff, but lovely to do that. What a birthday treat. Dan loves The Economist. So that's that sounds like a wonderful way to spend your day. So Economist, my other half has a subscription. I'm rubbish at reading all the articles. What I do, actually, that I would recommend for those that aren't interested in reading all of the articles is I follow them on Instagram and you basically just get the headlines which is quite good and you pick up quite a lot from that but Dan as an avid reader of The Economist what should I be checking out? Well I mean I, I get all my opinions from The Economist as you probably figured out by now <laughs> so you, you can always get a good idea of what I'm thinking or talking about at any given time just by picking up the previous weeks but I, I, I do like it I think what they're best at is the short the short opinion pieces at the start I don't particularly love their longer pieces and they get too drawn out but I love the really short one page really summarize a complex issue and draw and draw stuff out and they're quite good at that and their little summary at the start so that is always where I go and I sort of pick it up but they something the economist gets criticized for a lot and I think maybe rightly is maybe they're not really forecasting they're almost now casting or not even that it's actually almost a bit of a lagging indicator of what it is I mean you you and I have both done that sort of slightly tongue-in-cheek economist cover kind of matched against the chart sort of thing and it often does seem to be kind of they're always calling the bottom by when they're saying things are going to get worse kind of thing but so there, there is a little bit of that to it but anyway the thing i thought was quite interesting they're talking a lot about the future of work hybrid work and hybrid meetings and obviously that's a big topic for everyone in our industry and they did a piece a couple of weeks ago saying effectively are hybrid meetings the worst of both worlds which it sounds like sort of what we were saying maybe six months ago or something but i think it's maybe still right i don't know how you're feeling those going i think they are getting better definitely but they are still difficult i think so the when we were first doing hybrid meetings we probably talked about it in september time i think didn't we and the technology just there were just glitches in the tech which we had when we all moved to to online only and i guess we inevitably we had them again and i feel like some of those tech issues are resolving themselves but it's still really hard to go around a room and have equal voice when half the people are on the screen and half the people are in the room and you know you still have the people in the room stopping for lunch or doing a working lunch and there's a bit of chit chat over that period and the people on screen aren't doing that or you stop for coffee and you you chat in the room and the people online are, are going to their kitchen to make coffee and it still feels like it doesn't quite work what was the key point from the economist all of those things really the sort of the tech and the habits and the the contributions and it just not really kind of working yeah i i think we're in a transitional period of time and maybe what it needs is people to be a bit firmer about this is an in-person meeting for these people and these people can join remotely. It does make a lot of sense for some people to join meetings remotely for short periods of time, you know, to avoid travel and stuff. But I don't feel we're there with people kind of being firm enough and rightly so, obviously, because of where things have been. But as we hopefully come out of that, maybe they'll start changing. Them. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. Right. Should we, should we get to it on with the episode? Let's do it. Welcome to Investment Uncut. In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis. And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. Hi, everyone. This week, we're joined by an extra special guest, Alison Schrager. Alison is a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute and a Bloomberg columnist. 
Alison, welcome. Thanks for having me back. Hi, Alison. Welcome. It's been a couple of years, hasn't it, since we spoke. We'll maybe reflect on that in just a moment. But first, Manhattan Institute, tell us about that role. You know, Think Tank is a great job. Someone just pays you to think and write columns. And I joined, I think, actually right before I saw you last in January 2020. It's just a think tank dedicated to free markets and public safety, two things people can't argue with. So yeah, they just give me a lot of room to do economic research, think about finance and the intersection of finance and policy and macroeconomics, which is what I like to do. Fantastic. What a good role. You're also a published author. You've got, is it one book or more, more than one? One book. One book yeah. so far. I'm, I'm writing another one now. Oh, you are? Oh, cool. And so your first book was An Economist Walks Into a Brothel and Other Reflections on Risk. So a slightly provocative title there, which is yeah. good. And I remember you explained that title last time we spoke to you. Yeah, hard to top it, I'm finding. That. <laughs> yeah, that is, that is a difficulty with a, one like that. And of course, when we spoke last time, that was up in Scotland, wasn't it, at the PLSA conference two years ago, and you were just about to go on stage for the keynote speech. So it was very kind of you to spare half an hour to chat to me about, about it's that. It's good because you get nervous before a keynote, so it's nice to have the distraction. It was March 14th, 2020, right? Yeah, I mean, it feels, feels like about a decade ago, but it was, in fact, two years ago. It does feel like an awfully long time ago. Alison, just quickly then, what's one thing we should know about you that we wouldn't find on your CV? I used to sell incense in Alaska. Ooh, uh-huh. incense. And I'm not a very expert in incense. So there's different, <laughs> there's different flavors, right? It's, so do you get to kind of a favorite flavor? Is that I thing? actually hate incense personally. I was up there. I think we discussed last time. I'm American, but I did my university years in Edinburgh. And I spent a summer in Southeast Alaska and I didn't want to work in a fish cannery. So I met this hippie and she said, I want to take off this summer. Do you want my house and my store? Oh, so wow. I didn't choose the incense. I just sold them. Ah, okay. Right. Did they give you any particular insights into economics and human behavior and finance and those sort of things that you took away? It, it did because, you know, ultimately I'm not really much of a hippie. I'm more of an economics nerd. So I spent the time redoing her bookkeeping and sort of <laughs> marveling at how doing correlations in my head of how spending on incense correlated with the fishing haul each week. Uh-huh. I found it fascinating to live in a community that was so dependent on a natural resource Yeah. and how the economy of the local town was faring. So I'm a bad hippie. I'm a better economist. Yeah. Well, but that's a really genuine insight, isn't it? I mean, we're joking around with this stuff, but that is a fascinating insight to have well, seen. And it comes up a lot because there's a paper going around that's supposed to be proving that a UBI is, doesn't impact people's spending or consumption habits. But the paper actually is based on Alaska. And specifically, if you live in Alaska, you get a dividend from the oil revenue each year. So I actually have this knowledge from my time in Alaska of how people spend and consume and how their economy works. And I'm always like, this is a terrible experiment. One, because it varies up to 100% year to year based on oil prices. So UBI is by definition supposed to be stable and predictable. And second, it correlates very tightly with people's incomes because all the communities are so, everyone's income is so dependent on natural resources. So it's not UBI if you have a very variable income stream that's tightly correlated with your income. And you would expect it not to impact people's working in that case because people would have a strong precautionary motive. So in that way, it actually did help me as an economist later because I I have these odd little insights about how Alaskan fishing communities work. I love that you spent that time very early in your life 
and you have so many incredible insights about it. That is why you're in a think tank now. <laughs> it is, and it's why you know I could never work at a bank because, like, I have, and it, I think it describes the last book in this book is I have this odd need to like plant myself in these quirky little communities and figure out how their economies work. Like I was thinking about it, it's like in the way like some people need to take apart their TV or their car to figure out how it works. I need to do that with markets. Like I need to know why people are paid what they're paid and why this costs what it costs and you know exactly what's driving value. We'll hopefully get into some of that in today's episode. But Alison, first, so we, we said that it's been about two, well, almost to the day, it's been two years since you and Dan had that chat up in Edinburgh. And obviously a lot has changed. It feels like quite a different world over that period. Could you maybe just give us a few reflections on how things have changed, maybe how it's changed your thinking or how it's changed society's thinking, and I guess particularly in relation to risk? Yeah, well, I mean, it was a huge risk shock, right? And we all got to, I mean, we all think about risk all the time, but all of a sudden you had everyone trying to make a risk calculation for themselves about their health. And, you know, at first I was disappointed because I've always taken the view that people can understand risk better than we think that, you know, I don't put a lot of stuff. I, I think biases exist, but I think at the end of the day, people make sensible risk decisions. And obviously we watch people make really bizarre risk decisions, like either completely discounting the pandemic altogether or like wearing N95s every time they step outside. And you, know, you could think, well, what's wrong with it? But in some ways I'm even more strident now that people can make good risk decisions, but it really is on us as professionals and policymakers, and certainly it was on the public health community to communicate risk in ways that are sensible to people. I was just sort of really appalled by the way people were given data and information. And it's like, no wonder people are making wacky decisions. Like the data, I mean, granted it was hard to know, we didn't know a lot, but even sort of reflecting on the humility of what we did and don't know and how to make sense of what we know and what we don't know. And, you know, really as well from the beginning, I think something that disappointed me is that we didn't really like spend a lot of time, at least here in America, thinking about like, what's a super spreader event? What characteristics are common to that? Like what's high risk versus low risk? And, you know, as I said, we think we're risk managers. So that's how we think. We're like, all right, what's a high risk situation? Is this worth it to me? Can I take more precautions in this situation versus that situation? And I still maintain people were capable of doing that, but we never gave them the tools or insights to do that. It was always just like, do everything or then, no, just don't do anything. It's just, we never really helped people get the tools to be smarter about it. So, I mean, I've gained a lot of insights. I said, I'm working on my second book, largely inspired by what I observed, but it was a test of faith at times. Yeah, that's a really interesting insight because I remember that really stuck out to me from when I last spoke to you that, that you sort of kind of pushed back a little bit on some of the behavioral investing, behavioral psychological type stuff, which often concludes that, you know, we are just so doomed to fail in these kind of uncertain, complicated domains. And, and your point being that, well, actually, no, people can make sensible risk-based decisions. And interesting that you still sort of believe that very firmly, but don't feel that we were sort of allowed to in many ways in, over the last couple of years. Yeah, you know, and the information I said has been poor. Like I was talking to my father the other day and I was like, you know, cloth masks don't really work very well. And he's like, where'd you hear that? And I'm like, Twitter. And he's like, well, I was watching the news and the head of the CDC said you should never go outside without one. And I'm like, you know, I sound like the crazy person here, but I know I'm not. Yeah. And is it back to simple stuff? Like it's often said that, what is it? Things like natural frequencies are much better than percentages, simple things like that to say, you know, one in 10 people will suffer this rather than saying there's a 10 percent chance is it back to those sort of lessons that you think yeah i think that helps also i mean we just never even if we didn't even think of percentages very well like i don't know about you but i you know so far touch wood i i never got covid anyway i took all sorts of risks and i know so many people were so careful who did 
And then I was reading somewhere like 57% of Americans either haven't had it or have had an asymptomatic case and didn't know it. And I'm like, wow, you know, that's, that's like actually kind of a lot. And I mean, nothing you want to bank on, but I think that puts a lot of the risks in perspective. But this is information that we never really were presented in any way that's clear. So I think natural frequencies help, but I think it was just really appalling the information we got. I mean, granted, they didn't know. But then again, why didn't we do more inquiry into the obvious things that would have helped us manage the risk better? Hmm. And this is all in the context of people making good risk management decisions actually in the moment, because I think probably before this risk shock, lots of people would say, well, it's very easy to make risk-based decisions before the event. It's very difficult to make it in the event, but you're sort of saying, actually, if the data was better, we would have been perfectly capable of making good risk decisions in the midst of better. what was going on. Not perfect. I mean, you know, we're all human. And even the people I know who are super careful tended to be the one who would then just randomly do something so reckless. So, I mean, we are human and I'm sure people would have not been perfect, but I think they would have been a lot better. I mean, I think one thing that, annoyed me is the inconsistency of people's behavior. Like if people want to be careful all the time, great. If people want to be just whatever, I want to take my chances, great. But they were so strident about whatever they were doing and then would be completely inconsistent with it that made no sense. Or I remember it was it would have been summer 2020, I had dinner with two friends outside and they were like, wow, you know, we're risking our lives here. I mean, these are healthy youngish people. And I'm like, you both biked in city traffic here. I mean, like having a dinner outside is not the riskiest thing you're doing today. I would never bike in city traffic. Or I had a friend the other day who, you know, he's been vaccinated, boosted, and he's just like, I invited him to some event. He's like, I don't know if we should go. You know, I'm, I'm just like really nervous about long COVID and it impairing me mentally because I hear long COVID can really mess with your brain function. And we don't know that, although I, I like the implication that I don't need to worry about that. Um, <laughs> so, like, I, you know, you know, a million people have gotten COVID. I don't know how many people you know who are suffering with long COVID mental impairment. Surely there are some people, but not a lot. In the meantime, this is someone who goes hiking every day in a forest full of deer ticks where a lot of people get Lyme disease. I know a lot of people have had serious neurological damage from Lyme disease but no one who's have neurological damage from COVID. So it just, I'm not going to say it's not a, a risk you could worry about, but it also seems completely inconsistent with his behavior otherwise. Yeah. And I suppose it is getting sort of distracted by the, the event of the moment. And actually it's the data around how it relates to other risks that you, as you say, take every day that we probably didn't have because no one was putting those numbers into context. We just saw lots of numbers and they were huge and that's scary, but. It is. And, you know, as I said, now people are worried about nuclear war. So it's sort of putting that in perspective. And of course, that's a very different kind of risk because it's not one you feel like you control. I've been reading from my latest book, a lot of Mary Douglas. Have you heard of her? No, I haven't. No, me neither. I never heard of her either. She's an anthropologist. I've never read anthropology literature before. It's very difficult for me because they don't argue like economists at all. So it's dense. But she wrote this book, Risk and Culture and Risk and Blame, all about how society decides there's always risks to the world but how society decides which risks are taboo and what risks people take and they're then blamed for going wrong. And it really is just like a guide to our times. I mean, she died several years ago and those books were written in the early nineties, but it really is just, you know, people get really like make risk taboo if it gives them an excuse to be angry at certain people. People already heightened to hate the other side. So once you had a risk and you had different political groups taking risks differently, it was just like textbook Mary Douglas, how people responded and then how they internalized their own risk-taking behavior, where it became sort of an act of identity. 
That does sound pretty interesting. The one bit I want to come back to just quickly, when you were talking before about the data and making that available, do you think there's a question there over the the structures and the organizations that exist in countries to do that? And it was there a shortcoming? Obviously, there's the CDC in the US, there was Public Health England in the UK. Is there a little bit of a lack of, I don't know, data scientists operating in governmental structures that could have done that better, do you think? Yes. Yeah, I think as well. I mean, I, I wonder if a lot of these people are really trained a lot in, you know, data science in a good way. And also, and I certainly don't think they're trained in how to communicate data in a way that's meaningful to people. I mean, I think we ta- discussed last time Gerger Gerenzer, who specializes in this, and he would always rail that people in public health and doctors don't know how to communicate risk. And I feel like he's been validated a lot. You know, and it might be they, they were pretty busy trying to make sense of all this. But you know, in, in America, they certainly did a lot of like armchair, like psychoanalyzing of like, well, let's not tell them this. So they do this anyway, we know this. And I think that lost a lot of trust. If you read their best practices pre-pandemic, it's like, be honest, say what you don't know, what you don't know. So it was all the Gergerens are like, how do you communicate risk in five ways? Think about frequencies, communicate honestly, explain shortcomings. But when it all went down, they sort of abandoned all these best principles. So maybe they also just didn't have the people doing it. Maybe also, I don't know, maybe people who go into public health and want to work as government bureaucrats, maybe they also have their own risk preferences, which they're projecting. And we're back to personality types and and all that sort of stuff and appealing to wider markets and understanding what drives people that don't think like you, I guess. I understand their risk aversion. Like if I was head of the CDC and I like really didn't know what was going on, you want to err on the side of caution because if you're like, go out, go to parties and then a bunch of people die, you don't want that on you. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Should we talk about why Americans should be more like Europeans? Should we move on to that? Alison, I'm really keen to hear your thoughts on this. Well, you know, maybe a provocative title, more provocative than the actual story. So, you know, I'm an adamant consumer myself. But, you know, if you look at American consumption habits since the 80s, you see that Americans have just been consuming. I mean, everyone's consuming more because of trade. Things got cheaper technology, but American, like if you look at increases in consumption, you see Europeans like this nice linear trend. Americans are this exponential pen. So we buy so much crap. I mean, I found this study that like the average household has multiple refrigerators, even low income households have five flat screen TVs. The average garment is worn seven times before it's disposed of. And I mean, people have pointed out that Europeans have gotten as bad as the rest of us. But when I lived in Europe, people were a little bit more thoughtful. It's like, you know, rather than buying like five pairs of cheap jeans, you're only going to wear three times, you would buy like something nice and really savor it. You would have one refrigerator or a household. So, you know, in the time of shortages, I'm not saying shortages are a good thing, but maybe we, I was sort of arguing, maybe we should sort of reassess like our voracious consumption and maybe only buy things we really love and are going to use. People got so mad. People still tell me that they need four refrigerators. What goes in each of their four refrigerators? I only have one. I don't understand. People say, well, I live alone. So maybe that's why. But people are like, I need a refrigerator for soda. Just for soda. Wow. Okay. I mean, I have a beer, so I have to hold my hands up there. But we do just have one other fridge. So you have two? We're a two fridge household, which they were both there when we moved in, in our defense. But we do use both. Yeah. And what's in the second one? One is alcohol <laughs> and one is all of the food and, and soft drinks. Yeah. Is that unusual in your community? I don't think it's that unusual. If I'm, I'm going to be honest and say I'm, I'm the same, actually. Yeah, we've got one in the garage <laughs> that's got alcohol in and then one in the kitchen. So, yeah I, yeah, I don't think it's that unusual. 
So maybe it's not, maybe I say, be like Europeans in the 1980s. <laughs> it should yeah. have been the article, like back when people still didn't have phones. I mean, the clothes point is really interesting. And I think I've noticed a much bigger emphasis on buying good quality and wearing it more often. And part of that is driven by, you know, the climate transition and reuse, recycle and all of that sort of stuff. So, I mean, how do you reflect on that in the context of consumer trends? Yeah, I bring that up. I'm like, if we really care about the environment, I mean, one thing that strikes me is when we talk about being more environmental here in America, the first thing we go to is electric cars. It's like buying another thing. It's not like, gee, you know, if we really care about the environment, maybe we're going to have to do without some things. Maybe we don't even have to do without, but just be more thoughtful in what we do. Don't buy a garment and wear it three or four or seven times and get rid of it. Wear it for two years until it dies. Instead, we just hear, oh, there's this other thing you can buy. So I think that's one of the reasons people got angry because, you know, it, it did unite everyone of don't tell me what I can't buy. <laughs> well, yes, that was the fascinating thing about it. I was going to say, you sort of seem to do the impossible and unite both sides of every argument in America against your piece, your argument, which I, does, I suppose does go to show how there's a deeper point there, isn't there, that people do are quite attached to their ability, at least their ability to consume, if not actually the products themselves. Their, their right to do it is quite important to them. Yeah, no, and I, I'm a voracious consumer myself, and I'm not trying to tell people, but like, if you look at the data, it's a little out of control. I mean, why are people in the bottom 20th percentile of America own five TVs? I mean, just, it's a little nuts. I mean, this is it. If you look at our consumption, how much it's grown, I mean, do we really need to be buying so much stuff? And this is it. It's only did I unite the left and the right in America, but Edward's career high point, Edward Snowden tweeted that I brought America and Europe together in mutual hate too. So. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow, what a piece. I guess reflecting on like takeaways, I mean, it, when, when we're talking about things like net zero transition, there's always this debate about supply and demand dynamics and policy and regulation, those sort of things. And obviously quite a lot of regulation focuses on the supply side of regulating companies and investors about what they can do. But I suppose your the idea behind your piece is getting in that demand side a little bit, saying that that's what has to happen. So are, are there any read across into what the policy and regulation should be to kind of get that to a sensible place, do you think? Well, no, I mean, I don't like to put restrictions on what people buy. I think it to some degree is, is a bit more of a cultural shift of maybe being more thoughtful. If we really care about the environment, I think it can't just all be from the top down. It has to be people saying, you know, I'm not even like, it was amazing as all these friends said to me, she's like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm starting to like buy stuff in thrift stores. And I'm like, I'm not even telling you to spend less money. I'm just saying, you know, buy higher quality things that you love. Like I did a little segment on Bloomberg and this girl was showing me five pairs of cheap shoes. I'm like, just buy one expensive pair, you know, savor that moment, go to a beautiful store, spend time trying it on, and then just wear those shoes and actually wear them. And so the cheap shoes that hurt your feet. So it's just, I think maybe the way they have the slow movement for food, having a slow movement for consumption. Mm. Which goes directly against the kind of fast fashion that's been dominating sort of for most of the last decade, I guess, right? So, so you're saying, yeah, it's more a bottom-up driven cultural mindset shift rather than something that a policymaker or an economist is going to sit down and figure out the perfect tax and incentive structure to make happen. Yeah, or saying you can only buy three sweaters a year. I mean, we don't need to do that. No. Okay, so moving on slightly, another really good piece you wrote recently that we wanted to chat briefly about, this idea of, of a sort of startup boom. I mean, it's often said that there tends to be, there can often be a little pickup in startup activity just after big kind of recessions and kind of negative economic events. What's your reflection on on sort of where we are now in terms of that startup kind of risk taking in, in, in the US? 
Well, it seems to be holding up, which I didn't expect. I mean, we have a very tight labor market. You know, employees are paying more than ever, especially at the lower end of the skill level. And we're no longer giving people checks and people are free to work. And, you know, we're definitely out of a recession, yet we still see business applications at an all time high or like near pandemic highs. And, you know, I hope that's the start of people working more independently. It could be them also exploring some gig work on the side, which I think also could be a healthy way for the labor market to work. But we've had a real dearth of risk taking, in particular entrepreneurship. And I think it's led to a lot of the decline in dynamism. I mean, I, it's weird to say that because we look at Silicon Valley and be like, they've been on fire, but that's just a very elite, small part of the population. And I think entrepreneurship at all levels, all skill levels, all income levels is important and contributes to the economy and contributes to dynamism and contributes to wage growth. So I hope it keeps up. We really don't know very much about it, though. Also said, the only data we've collected on it are the business applications, which are way up. But we're going to need more data from the census to see, you know, what kind of businesses these are. Is it is this just someone, you know, selling stuff on real real, or is it someone, you know, really sort of doing a full on side hustle, or is it someone really sort of actually forming their own business? I mean, it could be a lot of both, but I'm hoping it is all of both because I'd love the idea of even. I mean, this was like 15 years ago. I was at a conference and an economist said that speculated that the sort of where the economy was going would be going back to sort of more of an artisan economy where people work a little bit more for themselves, produce goods more thoughtfully and sort of cheap stuff would be, you know, by AI and like tech or whatever. So to some degree that might be it. I've sort of been waiting for that because I think there is something kind of nice about that idea. Yeah. I was going to ask what kind of businesses, but so, so the data's not, the data's not sort of out yet on that in terms of types of industries and, and that sort of thing. Not really. I mean, we do know that these tend to be, we do know that these are going to be very small businesses that probably won't hire people. They're not people who are planning on having payroll. So I think it is going to be sort of smaller side hustle things, but even that can be good. I mean, you know, especially if people are working from home now, they might have more room in their lives to do more side hustle, do more contract work. And, you know, I, I've never been a huge fan of, I mean, I think because it's the way it's been for a couple hundred years, this idea that you have this employer who completely is responsible for your life and all your income and where you are. And I like the idea that workers are getting a little bit more independence, a little bit more power. I mean, you don't have to be a member of a union to have power. You can sort of take your own power. Hmm. That's really interesting, reflecting on the sort of American, European angle there as well, because often, like you say, you can think about dynamism and entrepreneurialism and maybe get too focused on the kind of Silicon Valley success stories as kind of the symbol of entrepreneurialism and, and, and dynamism. And obviously, from a European angle, people often say, well, that's a real shame. Why aren't there so many of those success stories in Europe? I guess what you're saying is there's a lot more to entrepreneurialism than than that and there, there could be all these things going on but you know you're not really looking at it or collecting the right data to really know have you seen this in europe uptick in business applications or entrepreneurship or everyone just kind of go back to work i haven't got the data. i just don't know the data to be honest it hasn't stuck out to me it could be i, I just don't know don't know the data i get the sense that there has been a bit of an uptick because there have been discussions about pension savings for the self-employed and whether there's a big risk to that in relation to more people being self-employed or having other forms of income, but not being automatically, not automatically paying into a pension, and then the risk that they won't have enough money when they when they stop doing that. So, and I think that that conversation is because there is this, but I don't know if it's a perceived or an observed uptick. 
We should probably have that conversation too. I don't think we're actually even talking about. I mean, I felt like we've in America and the same thing in the UK, we feel like we kind of cracked the DC saving issue by automatic enrollment and automatically having people save. But you're right. If people are more self-employed, they're not doing that. I mean, I know I don't put any money. I have a salary job and I also have a lot of self-employment income. And at the end of the year, my accountant tells me how much to put aside just to dodge taxes. And that's my whole saving strategy. It's embarrassing, right? I'm like a retirement economist and this is how, how much I contribute. I mean, I think this this is a worldwide trend that people, you know, we've talked about it in the podcast before in terms of engagement with pension savings and, and when you have to do it sort of more proactively where people end up landing. And of course, most people will at least do the minimum, but a lot of people get stuck at that point. So... Should we talk about saving and investing? I think you had another piece out on how safe assets could be investors' biggest risk. Really keen to hear your thoughts on that one. Yeah, I think what people don't understand about investing is that really the heart of all investing strategy is the safe asset. It one defines how you think about risk and it also is in almost every asset pricing formula. So, you know, it gets a lot less attention. People see a T-bill and don't think much of it, but it really is probably the most important asset in finance. And if its price is distorted in any way, so is every asset price. And so is how we perceive risk. And I wonder if its price has made any sense in the last 20 years. I mean, we see it going way, way down. It's negative right now. Maybe it should be negative, but it's hard to imagine why it's as negative as it has been for as long as it has been. And it's hard to know because there's been so much policy that's been tinkering in that market. You know, certainly since the pandemic here, the Fed is buying everything that's not nailed down, that's non-equity asset. And, you know, we've been having foreign governments as well trying to manage their currencies by buying pounds, by buying dollars. So you do wonder, you know, especially now that we're seeing bond yields tick up again, you know, it, it can be very disruptive. Like a lot of people in America who don't have a lot of experience in finance, but are macro commentators, or it's popular to say, well, you know, maybe it's good well 4% inflation, you know, going forward. I mean, what's wrong with that? And I'm, I, you know, if we started with 4% in the 80s, if that was always our target, I would have been like, fine too. But the fact is we started with two. That's not what the Fed credibility is hinging on. And not only that, that's what fixed income markets are hinging on because the real rate of return on the risk-free asset is based on inflation. So if we end up with 4% inflation, that means nominal yields are going to have to be at least 4% or at least three or something. And, you know, financial markets are built around, well, something a lot lower. So that can be very disruptive to the financial industry. So, I mean, it really is the truly the most systemically important asset in finance. And we don't know if its price is totally distorted. And I think we should maybe think about it a little bit more. Mm, I would say it's a really good point. I mean, I, I agree that, that the risk-free assets are, are sort of underappreciated because they're that building block. And that, that simple little formula, relatively simple little formula that you just sort of mentioned, which is sort of you know, nominal yield minus inflation plus risk premium sort of thing. It so rarely works like that in people's minds that people are really taking into account inflation and where the risk-free is in terms of thinking about returns. It's often just thinking about some fixed number returns that you're expecting from stocks or whatever into the... So you've laid out the problem, I suppose, which is that we're just racking our brains on, is the risk-free rate kind of real or is it somehow make-believe? But it's clearly a problem. Any progress on how we can answer that question and, and make some progress on whether it is reliable or not? Well, I mean, the Feds here and I guess B of E and ECB are all going to neutral to deal with inflation. It's so silly. It's like, we have a big inflation problem. So let's no longer like be expansionary. Like we're not gonna be contractionary, but we're just not gonna be expansionary anymore. 
It's crazy. But anyway, so we're going to go back to neutral, which I guess means the Fed is not going to do anything to distort the risk-free rate. It's just going to be at its natural rate. So I guess that's a start. I don't know if that will do anything about inflation, but at least it will take some of the wind out of asset markets or certainly some of the distortion. So we'll, we'll, we'll see even if we get there. I was talking to a former Fed official the other week. I was like, when's the last time we've even been at neutral? And he is like, we, he said, we kissed it for a second in 2008, <laughs> or 2018. So right. it's been a long time. And he points out no one at the Fed now has even been there when we've had even a neutral rate policy. So, I mean, I guess that's all we can do is say like, I, I think we might have a rude awakening when we go back to normal, because when we have the Fed going to neutral, whatever that means, if they mean that. And two, I wonder if we're going to be having foreign governments buying so much risk-free assets. I mean, I mean, with what's happening in Russia and China, there might be a bit of decoupling and less need for the U.S. as a you know, risk-free asset for the rest of the world, which means you know, we might end up with interest rates back to where they were in the 80s. Oh, no, not the 80s, but maybe the 90s. And I think that could be very disruptive indeed for financial markets that are used to borrowing capital zero overnight. And then any thoughts? I mean, you said at the start of that, in terms of the way that the normal person on the street doing investing thinks about investments, they don't think about this risk-free asset. Have you got any thoughts on how they maybe should be thinking about this in the context of potential distortion, but maybe not, but rates might be rising or not? And how do they get through all of that? I think they have to think through like what their risk tolerance is and what they're prepared to sort of see their portfolio go through. I think the average person on the street, a lot of people got into investing during the pandemic. The people I know who, who knew nothing about finance were like telling me how, you know, they're buying individual stocks and are very excited about it. But like no one expects to lose money doing it. So I think you got to say, okay, you know, we've kind of had this big distortion. Getting out of it could be a little bumpy. If you're not prepared to deal with it, maybe think about being in a low risk asset. Otherwise, you know, just sort of look away and hope you don't need your money in that time. Then in terms of the low risk asset point, do you think it's challenged some of the really founding theories, I guess, of investing and the sort of lifestyling into retirement, going from equities to bonds and into retirement or balanced sort of 50-50, 60-40 funds? I mean, they those kind of ideas look a lot worse in real terms, don't they, if inflation's at four or five and nominal yields don't get very far up. So do, do you think it challenges some of that or you, do you see it getting back into balance? It depends. Like it depends. The principle of going more into bonds as you get closer to retirement, I think is a sound one just from a life cycle finance perspective. But on the other hand, it's like, well, what bonds are you going into? And in America, we go into short-term nominal bonds. I mean, I think that's going to be a problem. But if people were hedging their consumption or in inflation index bonds, we don't have as many as here. We don't have the market you have for them, but still we have a market for them. They're expensive as all get out, but you know, that's the price of safety right now. You know, I think that would be a fine strategy, but the problem is we sort of implemented 60, 40. I don't think with a lot of people in finance really understanding why we were doing 60, 40 and what it was supposed to achieve. I think they, they tend to get very focused on asset balance and like, how can we get this asset balance to get very stable as people get older in nominal terms? And that's not really how you should be thinking about the problem. So that's why it's going to look bad. But I think in principle, 60-40, depending on how you define 40, is fine. And I think we'll hold up. You touched, Alison, on the fact that lots of people have started investing through the pandemic. Maybe we could now talk about whether stock picking should be allowed another recent piece that you that you put out. Yeah, more anger from that too. <laughs> it's weird what unites people. You know, who knows that both lefties and conservatives want to buy five refrigerators and own individual stocks? 
So weird. Yeah. So it's a valid question. I mean, we put all these controls on risk taking in ways I think is a little inappropriate. Yet for some reason, we encourage individual stockholding. That's sort of what people think of when they think of investing. And it seems weird to me just because it's so inefficient. And I mean, I don't own, actually I own one now. I bought one for the sake of the column. I decided to learn what's involved in buying an individual stock. And honestly, I don't remember what I bought. Just I wanted something I could buy for $10 so I didn't have to devote too much of my portfolio to it. Right. Now it's going to make me rich. <laughs> and I will come out and be like, I was wrong. No, so I mean, it's efficient. Like, so it's this like golden rule, law of gravity, I guess, when it comes to financial markets, the more risk you take, the higher your expected return. So you can only get a higher return if you risk some loss. There's one exception to that rule. There's one free lunch in finance, and that's called diversification. So if you own a lot of stocks, then you can get a higher return and less risk. So everyone should do that. And you can't handpick those individual stocks and beat the market, so you should have an index fund. I mean, these are sort of known things, and I think this should be the standard of how people think about investing. So if you think of that, it's like, I mean, maybe we don't have to outlaw individual stock ownership, but maybe when you do it, you should have a little warning. Like, if you thought about an index fund instead, you might do better. Or, you know, maybe you should just keep this to a smaller part of your portfolio. Like, in my workplace 401k, if I opt out of it, I get like a million pop-ups telling me that I'm imperiling my financial future and I don't know what I'm doing. And it's actually kind of nerve wracking even for me. And then one time I was like, should I have a call Fidelity's financial planner to tell me how to invest for retirement? And I'm like, no, who is this guy? Why would he know more than I do? But yeah, if I go from an overpriced 60-40 plan to my own 60-40 plan with funds I picked because they're cheaper, then I get a million warnings. Yeah, if you, in your brokerage account or whatever, or in Robinhood, like day trade individual stocks and you don't get any warning. And that just seems odd. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's back to the real inconsistency that the way risk is being handled at a, almost a regulatory level, isn't it? Because I mean, if you look at something like Robinhood, it's even gamifies trading, doesn't it? It's almost it literally encouraging you to trade as much as possible, not really showing you how you're doing even probably what you most people probably wouldn't know what their returns are versus the S&P Robinhood stocks. Whereas if you go to the broad investment industry some of how they're allowed to speak is incredibly regulated and you've got to be very careful what they say but there's sort of the wild west on the other side and when, when you go to robin hood and some of the cfd trading companies even worse maybe yeah people don't think about risk at all it's sort of astounding it's like now i keep hearing people say well people get higher returns we should let people invest in private equity it's like sure but you know there's a reason why those returns are higher yeah so i've been racking my brains trying to think of the counter argument here for the for the individual stock investor. And I mean, of course, there's the I can do better than the market argument, which I think most average people on the street probably can't really claim. But I'm I am struggling to find the counter argument. I don't know if you've heard any, Alison, that 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 you could share. It's freedom. I mean, I think there is something to, you know, capitalism, not very popular right now. I think allowing people to be stakeholders in capitalism is important. I think for society, for because effectively, like if we were to do this right, someone has to day trade stocks. So it should be like hedge funds or so, someone with lots of money and time and arguably expertise. So I think that would be a bad look, like only rich people can do this activity. So I think that might be bad from a social perspective. That's why I think ultimately come down on fine, let people buy individual stocks. But like just if we're not committed to good financial literacy, at least give them a little warning saying, hey, mutual fund might be better for you, but have at it if you want. Yeah. Because I suppose the other arguments I was thinking were things like, you know, actually, I've got a strong view that I want to support this particular company, but that's then not a financial argument. So you might decide you want to buy stocks because you want to support a company that's up and coming. 
because you believe in what they're doing and maybe there's an environmental angle or something but that stops being your investment portfolio and starts being something quite different i think yeah one thing i think we're noticing even with ukraine is how we're really thinking very differently about corporate responsibility and how people invest i think esg is really changing i thought other sort of fad but i think it's really changing how we think about investing yeah, and, and I suppose the responsibility level there for the for the individual stock picking has to be at the level of the the platform or whatever thing is enabling you to trade, wouldn't it be to try and put some guardrails around it or put some notifications to yeah to say well we think you should be holding at least ten stocks and no you shouldn't just be probably just shouldn't be selling that stuff that you bought yesterday and then and then buying it back again. But those kind of platforms I suppose don't really seem to to exist really. It's it's either the the Robin Hood go for it kind of thing or the the vanguard here's an index fund kind of thing so Alison, you you've already mentioned you're writing your second book is there anything else on your agenda for the next sort of 12 months that that you can share with us i mean i keep taking on too many things but yes i'm gonna be writing my bloomberg columns and you know doing panels and sort of writing things for manhattan institute too so i guess just writing and book research and can you give us a little preview of the book and what it's about or yeah is it top secret? so i'm exploring our changing relationship with risk and how we've become more risk averse as a society and the cost of that and how we can feel better about taking more risk. Mm, well, that sounds like incredibly interesting. You just need to come up with a absolutely brilliant title now that can top the other one. You know, you can always come up with a title. It's like, I realized like that was a good story, my time in brothels. That was a good story and I need good stories. It's, I've met some interesting people doing the second book, but Something about the brothel was special just because I spent time there in this world. And if you have any ideas of other weird worlds you want to see economists explore, I'm open to it. Well, you just did so many of them last time because there was the other, there was the big wave surfing one as well, wasn't there, where you were hanging out in Hawaii with all the big wave surfers. And yeah, you kind of you kind of put it all out there in the first book. I guess that's a, that's the difficulty with the, with the second book, not that I would know. I met some cool people. I'm talking to a mob hitman. I'm talking oh, to a wow. hunter. I'm not really like in the world, but like, you know, they have, they're fun people too. Excellent. Well, really looking forward to it. What's the, the rough plan for release? I don't know. I mean, I'm doing it with an academic publisher this time. They're a lot slower. So I, they think they want it in in like August 2023, but I'd like to get it in earlier and move it along. So we'll see how it goes. Okay. Well, we'll look out for it. We can't quite link that one in the show notes, of course, but we will look out for it. Cool. Yeah, we'll keep an eye out. Okay, Alison, just as we're kind of getting towards the end here, what's one thing that you'd like our listeners to take away from this whole conversation about risk? I think it is that they're better risk managers than they give themselves credit for. And, you know, they should take control of the data and control of their own decision making. Excellent. Good tip. And what do you think is the most underappreciated thing about investing? That it's a risk problem. I think people just think it's about making money, but really it's about moving money through time and thinking about how much are you willing to risk loss to grow your money. But really, it's a risk management problem. Certainly agree with that one. And finally, any recommendations for good books or, or podcasts? I know you were on a quite a famous podcast recently, so maybe you want to mention that. Yeah, I love the compound. As I said, it's the British equivalent of a bunch of Essex lads having incredibly profound conversations about financial markets and politics. So I think that's why it's just so fun to be on and to listen to because you feel like you're at a party and you'll actually learn a lot about finance and politics. And they have really like extraordinary guests. So I said it's sort of an unlikely crew, but it, it's wonderful to go on. It's wonderful to listen to. I also I'm reviewing uh, John List's new book, Voltage, which I also recommend. I think it's a better book than it's marketed as, which is strange because it's sort of like marketed as like a business book of like how to grow your business. But really, I think it's one of the most interesting books I've read a lot in a long time about how to think about our, the, how data is used in our society. 
Okay. And we, of course, had the Mary Douglas references earlier, so we can, we yeah, can include that. Yeah, they're dense. I mean, I, I hate reading other academic fields. I only know how to read my own. But I mean, if you, if you want a guide to our society now, dig up some old Mary Douglas. Okay. We'll add that to the notes as well. Brilliant. Great. Well, Alison, it's been absolutely brilliant conversation today. Thanks so much for your time. It's been great to see you again. Two years later. Two years later, indeed. And nice to meet you because I you obviously too. wasn't in the in the previous conversation. That's it from us this week on Investment Uncut. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. See you again next week for another one. Take care. Our podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.